we know that on a consumer level, I think close to 2 million people don't have a bank account in the UK. It's 13 million in Europe, over 10 million in the US. And they can't get bank accounts because the way that we assess credit and it is archaic and, and out of date. And you need a mortgage or a credit card to kind of get access to basic financial services of which many people either can't or, or, or don't want to get. Hello and welcome to The Finterview. Today we have a great guest, Jeff Parker, who is Senior Vice President at Marketa and he's leading the UK and European divisions. Jeff, great to have you. Please tell us a little bit about how you're finding the current market, Jeff. Well, uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me down. Always a, a pleasure to connect. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting times for fintech businesses around the world, yes. Uh, it seems to be a long way away from the, the heady times of uh, probably 2021. But I think, you know, like anything with with challenge comes um, opportunity. And I think at Marketa, we are, you know, well positioned as a business with a solid foundation and we'll continue to scale the market to not only continue to serve our, our customers well, but um, to, to spot opportunities where we can extend both our coverage and, and capability and, and build out kind of our, our strategic vision. So, um, yeah, testing times, but um, I guess if it was easy, everyone would do it. Super, super. And now I, know, I know we have a, a little bit of a framework for the interview, uh, but as always, I try to ignore it. Well, one of the things I'd like to dive into, Jeff, you've had one of the more interesting backgrounds in financial technology. Cer- certainly, you're one of the few people um, I've crossed paths with that have uh, crossed what I, what I like to call the silent divide in payments from the world of bank transfers and all of that and all that that entails over to the word of card payments. Teresa, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, what your experience was, and what you what brought you across the divide from the world of international payments and bank transfers into the world of card? Sure. Well, um, yeah, thanks. I've been, I guess, fortunate in my career to not only have had a few different roles, but also worked in a few different countries. So I started, I guess, on the dark side with with traditional banks, investment banks, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Macquarie. And then when I was doing M&A for Macquarie, ended up investing in a payments business, which is now known as OFX, which is an international payments business headquartered out of Sydney. I went over there as the, uh, the chief operating officer um, and we grew that and, and listed it in Australia. I then joined a similar business called World First, who were actually one of the first companies in the world to offer, I guess, what we now call virtual IBANs. And um, we were really enabling small businesses, merchants to sell overseas on Amazon, use our accounts to collect the money and we would convert them. And, and we, we made really good progress in in China were actually enabled or opened up the China market for, for Amazon. And for that role, I was in Hong Kong. I kind of did a number of roles there, but ultimately became the CEO and led that business, moving back to the UK. Um, and we sold the business to the Ant Group, the owners of Alipay, which is super exciting and interesting um, experience that from a, a cultural perspective. And um, once we kind of completed that integration, I was looking at my next role and I joined Marketa about a year ago. And as you said, Prior to, to that, I looked at cards as a bit of a dying kind of breed and lacking of innovation and you know, hadn't really had much interest. But actually, when I explored the industry and specifically what Marketo was doing, I actually realized there's um, huge opportunities, especially the way that digital wallets are are, are different in, in the West than they are maybe in the East, whereas in, you know, in China and Asia, they're very much linked to bank accounts. But over here, it's very much linked to the cards. And so these are a MasterCard play, a super important role. So um I joined them really with the aim of, of building out their international business outside of the US. And actually, if I progress a bit further forward, I actually think there's going to be a, 
an increasing convergence of of cards and non-card payments. And so I think that's where it gets quite interesting. I think increasingly our clients are looking for a partner that can do multiple things. I know the term one-stop shop is often overused, but you know, I genuinely see, especially in UK, Europe, that in a few years' time, we'll have fewer players that are offering more of that value proposition. So that's really what attracted me. And so far, you know, loving my time at Marketer. Good story. I, I must admit, um, I, I was in complete agreement with you when I worked in bank transfers. Not that I was... um particularly enamored with the idea of a bank transfer or, or, or not, nothing zealot-like, but I really saw the continued march of digitization uh, to be a heralding of the end of uh, physical tokens, which is effectively what a card is. Having launched a, a platform that helps fintechs get live, the, the great assumption that I made has been proven horrendously wrong. And one of the things I really didn't consider had nothing to do with cost, had nothing to do with convenience, had nothing to do with the mechanisms and the scalability of value transfer. It was branding. And Monzo basically blew the top off my theory. There's nothing like brand value. And in in a world of mobile phone payments and laptops, it's very difficult for your brand to have eyes on it by anyone other than the user. But if you're in the UK jumping on a bus or going through the, uh, the the gates at a train station, or buying your double cheeseburger at two in the morning when you shouldn't be for McDonald's, and you whip out a bright pink zesty um, card, people look at it and people go, oh, what's that? And it, actually the brand value that is associated with being able to have a physical representation of your company is hugely popular with entrepreneurs. And I actually don't see in, uh, uh, that ending anytime soon. Probably the biggest challenge is Apple Pay just because it's so much more convenient. But that doesn't mean the entrepreneur won't want to try and get a physical token of their identity into everyone's back pocket. Anyway, I'm going to ham fist uh, that and segue into the first part of our uh, interview, actually, which is understanding embedded finance. Uh, just just to go back a, a, a couple of seconds, you mentioned virtual IBANs. Most people don't know what virtual IBANs are. Would you, would you give people a a very brief introduction to what a virtual IBAN is and um, and how that is a form of embedding finance. You're putting something that your user couldn't get elsewhere into a journey that they're used to taking for, in your case, currency exchange. The great here, what, what are virtual IBANs? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think simplistically, I would call it a, what other people call a multi-currency account. Effectively, what we did and other people are doing is that they're creating or leveraging local banking networks around the world to open bank accounts. And then they're using technology and a user interface to kind of stitch them together into one unique customer experience. So if you're a UK business or a consumer, you could open an account with, say, my old company, World First, and you would get a, a US dollar account that was based in the US, a GBP account based in the UK, an Australian dollar account based in, in Australia. And that local domicile is really important because a lot of the payment networks work much more effectively with domestic payments. And then we would build a effectively a user interface over the top of that. So you would log into your platform and you would see all of these multi-currency accounts and they'd actually be provided by, by different bank accounts. Um, to your point, you can then embed those accounts into, into different um, kind of user experiences. And often that's um, you know, in a merchant checkout um, facility within an e-commerce um, platform. And I think you're right. That's a great segue into embedded finance. And back to one of your points, I think 
the interesting thing around brand value is very relevant with embedded finance because effectively what you're doing is you're embedding or integrating the financial part of a transaction or a product or a service into the user journey of a non-financial services experience. And so actually often that financial product in some instances can be invisible from a brand perspective. And I think the the experience starts to be owned more by the brand or the enterprise themselves, um, which has various kind of attractions for, for I guess, for both parties, which is um, super interesting as you kind of, um, I guess, explore a bit further. Uh, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I find interesting is I can speak to 10 people who are experienced financial professionals and ask them, what is embedded finance? And I can get 12 different answers on it. I really think part of the um, strength of embedded finance is you can go anywhere with it. And depending on the frame with which you're trying to answer the question, you can you can come up with m- multiple applications, multiple reasons for it existing, multiple timelines on it having existed. So I asked one prominent CEO, has embedded finance succeeded? Uh, to which they said, no, it, it's, um, it's not even got off, off the ground. To which I challenged them and said, well, Go to DFS in 1992. Get in your time machine. Go go to DFS in 1992, and uh, and you'll see embedded finance. Go to any car dealership today, and you'll get embedded finance. It's uh, I I think the Germans have a a slightly less sexy but slightly more accurate term for embedded finance. I'm not going to attempt the accent here. Um, not allowed to do that. But uh, it's contextual banking is is how they frame it taking a, a financial service in the context with which the need arises. And um, I'm really starting to see some, some super interesting use cases for contextual banking or, or embedded finance taking display. And, and I guess the theme is, the, the, the one thing I found across all of it is, you're taking a service that exists and you're putting it somewhere that it didn't exist before. And that service happens to be, in our case, fi- a financial one. What kind of use cases is um, is Marquette seeing um, in terms of uh, the application of embedded finance? Do, do you see yourself as the infrastructure laying the road to allow others to do it? Uh, so it would be your customers taking advantage, or do you see it, it's Marquette's job to do the the embedding? Yeah, it's, it's a great thing. I mean, I mean, just I guess adding into your kind of definition, I, I think what you said is is right. I mean, I look at it almost every single kind of product or service has a as a financial part to it whether it's a a payment or a loan uh, or an investment or, or or something like that and and it's putting that kind of component into say the journey of the company and effectively taking the the product where the the, the customer is marketa is a b2b infrastructure platform you know providing you know an api first cloud first um kind of um, product for for developers to build um, product on. And so from a customer perspective, they don't see Marketa, the brand, they see our partner's uh, brand, whether that's a consumer brand uh, like Uber or, or Klarna, or whether that's a kind of a, a B2B or SME kind of facing, whether it's like a, a lending business, a capital on tap or a, a MOS from a kind of lending perspective. In terms of some of the use cases, I mean, I think you know the obvious one that everyone uses is Uber. You know, obviously that used to be a taxi journey. You used to have to get to the end and find some money somewhere or get your card out or get some cash out. Now that's just a seamless, you don't even think about the payment. And that's kind of, I guess, the the definition of embedded finance. I think if you think about an online checkout uh, capability when you're 
either just making the payment or you're being presented with a um, an instalment option through BMPL or something like that. That's a, you know a great definition of embedded finance. In terms of Marketa, uh, we do those things. We're very strong in BMPL. We're very strong in kind of expense management, etc. We're seeing quite a lot around accelerated wage access as a really kind of growing uh, proposition. We have a great product in partnership with Uber and Branch where Uber drivers or couriers can actually access their salaries in real time. So literally as soon as they have dropped off their driver, they can choose to be paid their kind of portion of the salary for that. And that's, they log onto their app and they kind of click to connect and they're interacting, they're interacting with the Uber app, not their bank. And so kind of that's another definition. I think you talked about kind of the auto industry. I fully expect within a few years that there'll be, you'll be sat in your car and you'll be able to on the screen dashboard, either pay for your petrol or, uh, pay for on-screen enter- entertainment or buy your car insurance or buy merchandise from the car that belongs. You know, those are the type of things which you'll, I think you'll start to see pervasive and to your point, I think embedded finance will be everywhere. It already is everywhere. More than 50% of Marketa's new sales are what we would um, define as embedded finance. And, and with with the march towards an em- embedded finance future, really, um, not in my framework, but I'm going to say it anyway because you, you piqued my interest. What's the role of the bank in all of this? Um, we've already seen a physical retreat from the customer service desk of banks pulling numbers out of thin air right now. Uh, if if you were just to walk down a high street in, I, I'm guessing both the states and the and the UK and Europe and anywhere else in the world now, you'll see a significant number of bank branches that are now Pilates studios or or in my case Poundlands. We're also beginning to see the same process happen digitally, namely that I, I'm, I'm sure if the tier one banks were looking at their retail arm in the UK, you've had a ring fencing of small clients and small businesses. Anyone who's tried to set up a bank with um, a bank account as a small business with no trading history will know you, you virtually get shunned from, from, the, from the big banks these days. And if you don't fail and can raise uh, significant capital or, or strike it lucky, They'll cherry pick you um, once you're big enough. Do you feel they've retreated from the physical world? There is a, a an accelerating retreat from the um, from the SME and the retail marketplace, and we're seeing the Monzos uh, uh, and the Starlink step in. We're also seeing the enablement infrastructure like ClearBank, um, Griffins, were well, one of the newer ones. I think there's been more approved banking licenses in the past three years than there were in the past 10. What do you think the future of banking is and how does market, how, what is Marketa's position if if banks continue to further retreat from the plant experience? Look, I think the thinking of this has changed over time. I think maybe five, 10 years ago, people were predicting kind of the downfall of traditional banks. I think obviously that's probably overhyped. I think um, traditional banks will always be there and their roles may change slightly i think you've seen some of the legacy banks really aggressively drive their investment in digitalization i think jp morgan is a you know, a great example of that and, and in you know, doing many of the things that fintechs are doing sometimes better i think you're seeing other banks who are more proactively partnering with either fintechs or corporates um to get kind of enable them but more on a one-to-many scale versus a one-to-one because to your point i think the legacy black banks have pulled out and retreated from those markets often because the cost of service is too high because they're on legacy technology so if they can still provide some of the core services underneath but with a digitalized front end provided with 
either a fintech bank or a fintech kind of EMI license. I think it's nice to see some of the kind of your Monzos and your Starlings and your Revoluts and Oak North now starting to make profit, um, which is proving the business model can work. Having said that, in all of those latest accounts are driven either through lending or interest earned on balances that are held with the rising interest environment. And so that doesn't change in terms of a banking environment. So I, I think banks still stay very, very relevant. But I often think about fintechs as, we used to say this in the payment field, as you would know, um, they're almost like an, fintechs are almost like an institutional sales desk for a, for a traditional bank. They kind of, they go out, find the customers, and then all the traditional banks provide all, all the services. They still have this huge tailwind of inertia yet. Even you and me, I'm assuming that if you spoke to many fintech kind of proponents or even in the industry, we probably still have bank accounts that we opened when we were 10 years old because, you know, it was the Griffin Saver account and then we just haven't bothered to change it. So um, that's a massive boon for for these legacy banks. Um, but I think it, those relationships will change as the digitalization kind of speeds up and, and, and really becomes more seamless. Yeah, uh, couldn't agree more with that. And I, I suppose a hot topic or maybe a economic wind is more closely tied to politi- political and social wind at the moment in the sense of... Uh, Right the way um, up the corporate ladder into the um, the realms of power with governments, you're seeing uh, uh, the winds of change for positive change, objectively in um, environmental, social, and governance uh, focus. I do find it strange that they've tied those three things together into into sort of one driving force. As I, I firmly believe they're three uh, separate problems that 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 shouldn't be bucketed together. But in terms of um, financial inclusion social impact maybe maybe supporting niche banks things like that how do you think the industry sale is capturing the wind of today and what's marketer trying to do on financial inclusion social impact and things of that ilk? i think um one of the great opportunities that embedded finance brings is to is to i'm not going to say solve but to contribute towards some of those things i mean financial inclusion um you know you've touched on already we, we already know that Kind of SMEs are the lifeblood of the UK economy and many economies, and they're massively underserved by banks at the moment. So they're crying out for you know kind of access to affordable working capital. We know that on a consumer level, I think close to two million people don't have a bank account in the UK. It's thirteen million in Europe, over ten million in the US, and they can't get bank accounts because the way that we assess credit and it is archaic and, and out of date. And you need a mortgage or a credit card to kind of get access to basic financial services of which many people either can't or, or, or don't want to get. I think what embedded finance does is, and I think we'll get even faster acceleration with kind of AI, is it brings together financial services and non-financial services, which means it brings together more data points, which means we can create much richer and more kind of using predictive analytics, kind of a richer view on the risk profile of a customer. And I think it will enable us to offer financial services to a much broader uh, scope. At Marketa, we, we're working very hard on what we call credit builder products, where we use different data points to, to form that kind of risk profile and, and things such as subscription details. Like, you know, if you've got a Netflix subscription and you've been a loyal payer for 12 months without defaulting, why shouldn't that be a kind of a good indicator of of your ability to service a, a a financial service or product? And I think we're paying a key part there. We talked a little bit before around accelerated wage access. Forty percent of the UK 
adult population have less than a hundred pounds of savings. That's pretty incredible. So one unforeseen event means they kind of are forced into accessing high interest predatory loan type products. If we can give people access to their rightfully earned money earlier rather than waiting till the end of the month to get paid, that has a huge impact and, and effect on people's ability to manage their finances more effectively. And fintech and embedded finance is able to do that, one, because of the technology and two, because of the the, the information. So I think there's a massive opportunity for us there. It doesn't solve all the problems, obviously, but I think in collaboration, we can we can make a real difference to people's lives. Interesting. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask a potentially, not a controversial question, but suppose an alternate out- outcome um, to, to the one intended as that humans won't stop humaning. Um, and um, there is a, a phrase called Murphy's Law. I was speaking to, um, on this very uh, interview, actually, a gentleman in the States who runs a credit decisioning engine. And um, he said exactly the same things to you, but he was much more focused on um, allocate, uh, a capital allocation with the with theory of, of including, um, of creating greater inclusiveness. Now, th- this was not a loaded question. It was just a, a general inquiry. Is there is there not a danger that by having access to more data, it just doubles down on the potentially correct assumptions that um, lending companies have been making all along? Lending companies are very good at assessing risk. And if, um, let's say, for, for every 100 people that apply for a loan, they've got 10% are absolutely assured. We've got so much data on this person's credit worthiness. They're going to get the loan that they want. Then there's 40 people who are pretty sure We'll give it a loan. And then, uh, so what, we're at 50. Now there's two buckets. You've got 25 people, maybe we should give a loan. And 25 people, we don't know for sure we shouldn't, but we're very confident that we shouldn't give a loan. With those extra data points, do you think what may what could happen is they're just doubling down on their original assumptions and now we know we never want to lend to these 25 people ever because n- now with all of this extra information, the assumption is a certainty. And out of the 25 people that we may have considered lending to, we now know actually 20 of those are also in the never bucket. And so you have a net negative of 20 people who may have got access to capital now going down the garbage can, and then five in the middle who just find it marginally easier to get capital. Is that a danger? Uh, by trying to include, we end up excluding. So, um, so you've opened the whole can of worms out, I, I think. So, Yes, yeah, I think yes is always a danger. I think your statement around banks are very good already at credit assessing and lending. I would disagree. I think I think they're very good at assessing a certain part of the population, and they apply that then blanket rule across a whole broader segment, which is not necessarily right. I think we do have to be very careful about unconscious biasness and 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 reinforcing bias that already exists to penalise those that are already kind of penalized. But I think what it can do is a couple of things. I think one, we can start to provide credit or underwrite at a transaction level, not an individual level. So if I'm a business and I want to buy some machinery for $5,000, historically what happens today is you look at the business and the business's capability to fund that and you lend the business $5,000. And actually they can spend it on whatever they want. What is better use is if you look at that transaction and how that five thousand dollars of that machine and that machinery is going to help the business achieve its objectives, and you can decide, and then you can actually underwrite the five thousand dollars. And that five thousand dollars has to be spent on that piece of machinery. Um, so you can get more granular in terms of, of of how you think about those things, which I think is 
is super useful. And then I think what is also important is around education and awareness. And yes, you may decide that those 20 are still not underwritable at this point in time, but we're not very good at telling people how they how they can improve their kind of standing and what they need to do to to, to get um, access to credit. I think the, the, the greater visibility and transparency we can we can do to that to help people I think is only is only good. Fundamentally we can't change the way that people behave and and, um, and those things. And so there'll always be people that don't follow or do things wrong. But I think if we have some guardrails around how we want to operate, I think um in the main we should be able to we should be able to do predominantly positive experiences rather than negative. But I'm an optimist. Aren't we all, but I, I do like asking the questions to see see the response. Um, I do like the idea of on-the-fly uh, transaction uh, assessments rather than. Um, now, I'm sure if it's if it's a if it's a one-off large transaction, the assessment will be made both on the ability to return and the thing that's being bought. If if you need a loan to buy a ship and there's a big hole at the bottom of the ship, maybe you'll get. Not sure that that's that's getting returned. Going off on a tangent, but um, when I was at my previous, or when I was part of the AND group, we were looking at, look at a lot of the use cases for blockchain. Some of the amazing things that you can do there are, for example, the manufacturer of a bolt wants to get a loan. What they were doing with their technology was they would actually be able to track the life cycle of that bolt and where it ended up. And if that bolt ended up in a Volkswagen car, uh, it would have a higher credit score and they would lend more against it than if that bolt ended up in some child's toy that was you know, going to not generate much kind of economic value. And so... When you get to that level of detail, it's super interesting in terms of how you kind of uh, think about the value and the the life cycle and the supply chains and credit ultimately credit worthiness. So um, yeah, I think there's huge amounts you can do with um, with with data. Yeah, I'd never considered that. Um, I was uh, again to continue your tangent. Um, I was watching uh, an interview by uh, Piers Morgan, everyone's favourite person to hate, uh, and uh, it was on the the poor people that have been um, lost on the submersible in the Titanic. Um, and they had three uh, th- three guests interviewed. One was a personal relationship. One was a a, a former uh, Navy submarine captain pilot. Uh, I, I don't know what the correct term is. Uh, and that specific uh, gentleman was saying they should never have gone in this particular machine. None of none of the like the the build quality wasn't vetted, and the parts was not vetted. And to your point, he said. When you're building these things, what you what you need to do is track from source every single component. And he used the very specific phrase that you did: the bolt. If if the if the bolt is unknown on where it where its origin is, doesn't get used. If the bolt it gets used on a different part of the hull, even if it was for the same purpose, it's a no go. So, and he also said that's why submarines cost so much. So maybe blockchain will make um, defense and exploration a lot cheaper unexpectedly. Anyway. Um, let me wheel or tangent back in. <laughs> Super interesting point. Anyway, I know um we're we're, start, we're starting to get close to the time. I just wanted to um go a bit more topical because no podcast is complete by an industry veteran veteran who doesn't talk about uh the hype cycle that is uh, artificial intelligence these days. Just wanted to see, uh, get your insights and um and perhaps Marquetta's in perspective on how to leverage data and artificial intelligence. In financial services, where do you think our industry is going with this? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. It's a hype cycle. I think you know, AI isn't new. Yeah, I think it's been around for for quite some time, and I think there's been lots of examples where it's kind of created benefits, but also kind of maybe um, overpromised and under, underachieved. I think I actually did a talk on this last week in terms of how I think AI fits into financial services, and I think 
there's a, there's a number of use cases. I think we've talked about financial inclusion. I think there's a massive opportunity there around leveraging data more effectively to create more tailored and personalized propositions. I think credit underwriting is one we've talked about, which is, is interesting. I think customer service is one that's probably the most obvious that people are talking about and the use of chatbots. I think chatbots, I think kind of the natural language uh, programming and kind of the advances there mean it's much more humanized. At Marquette, Marquette actually, we've got kind of an innovative technology, um, emerging technology team. And just recently, we spent a couple of weeks, a couple of developers built an AI-powered tool that enables our clients to query how to use our API docs. And it's the chatbot that's returning and helping them give them advice, et cetera. I think there's a huge amount in terms of improved efficiencies around that. I think to start off with, it will be around assisting our customer service reps, but in the future, opportunity to, uh, I think, automate some of that. I think product development or A-B testing is massive. You know, when I was at Ant, we had... um, any one time between 10 and 100 kind of web pages live on the same page but with you know different versions of a red font or a button in a different place or language being slightly different and you can only really optimize that and process the the data and really see what's um, resonating with customers if you've got kind of large language models and an ai to really process that data in real time at, at speed um, and then i think finally the last one would be around kind of that fraud and risk management perspective. Um, I think, you know, Marketa, we have a proprietary risk management engine. We take input from multiple external sources to kind of create a risk score for our customers. And then we, we take the huge amounts of transaction data we're getting from customers um, to feed in that then ultimately will give us a predictive view as to whether a customer is likely to be fraudulent or not in the future. And I think, again, it's really only possible using AI because the volumes of data are just so high. So I think a lot of it in the in initially will be around process efficiencies and effectiveness. But I think longer term, we'll start to see it in terms of kind of product development and, and adding customer value. Yeah, d- definitely. The, the industry agnostic application that I see is eliminating the lag caused by the asynchronous nature of... Uh, of support. Uh, I, I see it every day. We have maybe 30, 40 channels where uh, either live customers or imp- customers going through implementation, or if we have a rogue salesman, a, a customer who's not signed yet, um, asking queries to or to our support team. And you can probably count, um, well, you ca- I can't count, but you could have a guess at the amount of time spent literally mechanically typing the letters into the keyboard and then ratio that up against the time it takes for that response to be seen and that time uh, that time to be re- responded to. And then what you have no visibility over is who are those people talking to to actually know what, what question to ask. With our customer, they might be, it could be an engineer speaking to uh, the ops person going, should we be making a payment and then taking the fee or should we take the fee first and back to us? Uh, and if it's a new customer service person on our side, uh, untrained, it's the duplication. Should they be taking the fee first? And I reckon you've got a ratio of something in the thousands to one uh, on on the seconds basis. That just that one application alone, if you could make sure the answers were accurate and the questions were relevant, which is actually where the real challenge is. But if you could do that, I see thousandfold uh, efficiency gains um, for 
for every business. And just that alone, eliminating asynchronous communication, quasi-dyadic, I, 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 did, I did my dissertation this a very long time ago. Um, just eliminating that would give a thousand full time to a significant portion of your of your labor force to actually, in theory, go on and get get uh, get pressing ahead with other matters. So I'm bullish on the efficiencies that can be gained just on that alone. I, I probably overhype that one specific use case. I probably underhype some of the other aspects of it, but it's it's definitely exciting to see. Um, I was expecting innovation to start compounding quickly, so. We saw ChatGPT 3.5, then 4. In my head, I was kind of forecasting ChatGPT 62 by now. Probably got a little bit too excited watching the All In podcast and other YouTube videos on it. But, it, but it's definitely an exciting space. Super excited to see what our companies look like in five years with this. Yeah, and I think for me, there's definitely some risk associated with it, like people using it in the wrong way. And I think there's some guardrails. I think we're already seeing... You know, a lot of the tech companies are, are putting some quite strict guardrails in terms of how they can use AI and, and what they use, which I think makes spe- sense, especially in these kind of early or, you know, this explosion that w- we're seeing now. But again, being the optimist I am, like I know some people are worried about what does it mean for the future of humanity. Um, for me, it's just allows us, it's the next stage of allowing us to use humans to do value add uh, activities and, and, and using kind of computers to, do things at higher speed and at greater scale, automating kind of those lower value tasks. And there's always, in my mind, going to be a need for for humans to do um, certain aspects. And I think for me, it's um, it's exciting. And and so so just on that point, do you see use cases today that you think, oh, if um if we could get AI to take care of the monotonous or the dangerous, humans could be doing this, or uh, or, or, or do you think, in a, sort of a, a market efficiency term, that all the jobs are currently filled, but new jobs that nobody knows will uh, will be created post AI uh, replacement of menial tasks? I think there'll be a number of tasks that are done now that will be replaced um, either completely or predominantly by AI. I think you know, I think some of the customer service ones that we've just talked about, a good example. Um, we just built actually a Marketa, an AI-powered kind of software generative test code capability so that as we're building, developing new code, we, we're using AI to kind of create automated regression testing scripts like in real time against it, which obviously before that would be, you know, a human being. I think humans processing large amounts of data from, I don't know, the performance of your marketing spend and acquisition etc on google ads and things like that can all be done and processed um through it but i think humans will still be needed to review the outputs and derive insights and and take actions and i 100 percent believe that there will be you know if you think 100 years ago you know, a lot of the jobs that we're doing now in terms of the service industry just didn't exist i'm very confident that in 100 years time there'll be and uh, half the economy will economy will be jobs that you know we haven't even thought of today and to me, that's kind of just ever. Yeah, I've I, I've really tried to think in a world where the um, yaysayers um, are are correct, and this is we're entering this wonderful uh, land uh, of, of plenty. What do humans do thereafter? Uh, and I, I keep coming back to I think we become more prominent in in the physical realm. So AI is amazing, but. Can you have a personal trainer that's an AI? Maybe, but um, 
when you get overzealous and, and lift lift that barbell that's slightly too heavy for you, the AI is probably not going to stop it from landing on your face and looking like an idiot. So are you going to have a plethora of PTs? Um, are you going to, is there going to be more shopping assistance? Is every high street now that it doesn't need an, uh, an admin office anymore, are those four admin people actually going to be on the shop floor, you know, making a, a, a more exciting retail experience? All of these sorts of things. I mean, hopefully we can solve some of the other problems in the world as well. You know, all the talk about climate change and other things, you know, we need more, we need more minds and more people focusing on those things. And in traditional services, I don't know about you and me, but if I want a plumber or an electrician, I can't get one these days. Like it'd be, quite, it'd be nice if we could have enough people to do some of those tasks. So like, you know, I think they'll always be jobs. Absolutely. I'm definitely excited though. Um, I was always a little bit jealous uh, of being my age and having uh, missed the internet revolution um, at, where I was actually a productive member of society. I think I was six or seven when, uh, when the internet became a thing. And um, all I was annoyed about was my mum wouldn't let me use the phone at certain hours of the day. That, that was its initial impact on me. But for people uh, as productive members of economies, there was a huge step change for them. And I feel we're embarking on that now and I'm, I'm pretty excited to see it, to be honest. Yeah, no, no, me too. I wish I was only six or seven at the, uh, when the internet revolution came. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for the time and we hope to have you on again someday. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure as always to, to chat to you. So uh, yeah, thanks very much.